Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Justin Sydney McElroy. I if I was a doctor, if I was a doctor, I would never ever, 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 ever say my name without doctor at the beginning. It would always be Justin Dr. McElroy. Always. Even if I was There's no it, there's it, no need. If to... I had the MD, if I worked, I got my MD, I'm gonna Or your I'm, DO. Or even, you know what, even I will make this concession. Even if you have one of the, like a PhD, like a pretend doctor like that, I would definitely did still you, put doctor no, at the okay. of that. Justin, did 100%. you just, I would just like to point out to all you PhDs out there, I uh, would never call you pretend doctors. And Justin, you should know that it is, um, I would say, more difficult to get a PhD than an MD or or a DO. Not that I have a DO. I'm not insulting my, my fellow colleagues who are DOs. But I think we could all agree, all of us, um, who practice medicine that um, PhDs seem harder to get. You have to argue something in yeah. front of people well, um, and mm. present it, uh, defend it, I believe, and mm. that and it takes longer. And I think it seems more difficult. You have to write big, long papers. Yeah, but um, I don't have either. And here's what I'm saying. If that is so upsetting to you, your intellectual inferior, Justin McElroy, maybe you need to like— Maybe there's some work you need to do. You know what I mean? If you're I hurt think by get, what I said, you should maybe take do some work. I think, like, I think they get tired of being called pretend doctors when they are every bit as much doctors. Pretend doctors, I never would That say. is what you said. Rachel, check the tape and see if I said pretend doctors. <laughs> I would doctors. just, listen. Right, well, hold on, wait. Rachel, just check the tape. So whatever see whatever sort of doctor, whatever sort of doctor degree you have, if you are angry about what has been said on this podcast, please direct all your angry letters to Justin and not to me. All of you doctors work hard for your titles, and everybody who's not a doctor, why do we have to divide it? That Justin, wait, listen, that was. Can I just? Why say do we have to quick? stratify society Don't based work. on levels of education? This is that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to tear everybody down. That's what I'm doing. I want to build everybody up. Okay, so Dr. Justin McElroy. I no, love it. Okay, that's not what I said. No, okay, I'm so saying you do that like the, the you I'm do like the elitism, the, the the structural elitism in academia if it benefits you, but not if it benefits I'm me. I'm saying dispense with the titles. I'm just Sydney. I'm just Sydney. And I'm just I'm Dr. just your friend Sydney who just, wants to do a podcast with you. You know, I'm Dr. Justin McElroy, but you can just call me J-Man or Hoops. Uh, don't ruin my replies. You're incredible. You've got a PhD. You know I'm kidding. But that's that's all I wanted to say. I, I love all diplomas, I guess. <laughs> if you're here today, you worked hard to get here. Whatever 
You did. You're here today. Your journey. Every step on your journey brought you to this moment where you're listening to our podcast where we're going to talk about your weird medical questions that you sent That's, me. You could probably tell from that loose energy is one of our favorite kinds of episodes to do where we just dig into the mailbag with all the your your weird queries. And you know what? We don't normally typify things as weird on this show. We try to avoid that sort of like you know, judgment of you, our dear listeners, but I think you are self-assigning as weird. Play <laughs> listen. Send the one into one of these episodes. Well, here's the thing. You are, because when I decide, like, hey, we haven't done one of those in a while, we should do one of those episodes, I go through my email, and Justin knows this, I don't delete any emails ever under any circumstances, pretty much. <laughs> and I go through back through the Sawbones email, and I search weird medical questions and this is how you title your emails. So you know, we both know it's weird. And also, by the way, I'm not criticizing. I appreciate that because it makes it really easy to search. So you can always send your weird medical questions to us anytime. Because when we decide to do one of these episodes, that's how I find your questions. I just do that search. So title it that way. And uh, and we'll all agree that it's weird because this is why it's not medical advice, right? I know. I know you're not telling people, but I am that's saying. That's why it's weird. It's just interesting. It's, just, it's, it's like just it's like just stuff you want to know. Just Curious. stuff that, yeah. Curious. Curiosities. This first one's from Justin. McElroy. When I eat American chocolate, my teeth hurt sometimes. And that used to be a problem for me, but they don't really hurt anymore. Could you read the first real question? Yeah, okay. I'm just <laughs> sharing that we all have weird medical stuff. Yeah, That's I don't. I don't know why American chocolate makes your teeth hurt. I really don't. It used, sorry, hon. I, I don't know why it used to. It, if you would listen. I think you have a tooth problem. And as we have discussed on the show many times, you need to talk to a dentist about your teeth. I'm Not me. I'm going to do it later. I have, an, I have an appointment today, actually. Oh, good. Did you ask what time? No. Do you want to share that? What time today? What time? 2.30. Oh, my I God. have a weird question. My husband has a shrimp allergy. Apart from the symptom of an itchy mouth, he also says that his tolerance to alcohol goes way down. It typically takes quite a few drinks to get him to act drunk. He's a big guy and used to run a bar. But if he's ingested shrimp... <laughs> He's a dozen shrimp. <laughs> We're not going to make this, through all these questions. This really is shrimp heaven now. This guy's... Bl- <laughs> <laughs> it takes far fewer drinks to get him feeling tipsy. If he's already been drinking, it pretty suddenly hits him hard and he becomes drunker. If you could go to a bar and be like, listen, I don't have a lot of cash tonight, so I'm going to need three beers and eight shrimp. <laughs> Why would shrimp allergy sudden decrease his tolerance like this? Is it some sort of histamine reaction, psychosomatic? I hope uh, uh, I hope you can help solve this medical mystery because Google has not been helpful. Thank you. Strange shrimp symptoms in Chicago. Okay, this is this was a tough one for me. Um, I'd never heard of this, so I had to do some searching, and I don't really have a straightforward answer. Huh. Um, as to why in this order things would happen. I I thought, though, that there is a phenomenon here that is real, that is not psychosomatic, that is um, an interaction between allergies and Mm -hmm. alcohol ingestion that we're still, like, understanding. That we we have a growing body of of understanding, but we're still not completely there. So there is a relationship. Some alcohol, for instance, contains histamine. So okay. it's pretty straightforward. So if you're having an allergic reaction and you drink alcohol, you can worsen it. Or you can, because it does have histamine in it, um, some people will just say, like, my nose runs when I drink alcohol. That was actually another email we got. Sometimes my nose runs. 
When I drink alcohol. Yeah. Well, some alcohol has histamine in it. So there you go. There you go. Um, alcohol has also been noted to increase something called IgE, which is one of the antibodies that reacts in a, that that is released and reacts in an allergic reaction. So you get more Ig if you have more IgE already, and then you're exposed to something you're allergic to, you could have a stronger reaction. Does that make sense? So the in general, the um, people who study allergies and immunological reactions say that the in general alcohol lowers the amount of allergen necessary to cause reaction, mm-hmm. uh, makes allergen related allergic reactions develop more quickly, and increases the severity of those reactions. So I know this is backwards though, right? Like you're asking me why would shrimp make you drunker, <laughs> and I'm saying alcohol would make your shrimp allergy worse. Mm. Uh, so the reaction, I know that this is the wrong order, but, and why it would work the other way around is still, uh, I mean, what we'd have to imagine is that in some way your allergic reaction is impeding his ability to break down the alcohol in a timely fashion. Cause that's really what it is, right? As we, mm-hmm. as we metabolize alcohol and break it down to its final byproducts and excrete it from our bodies, we become not drunk. Right. If you slow down that time. One, you get a buildup of things like uh, acetaldehyde, which can make you feel bad. And two, and that's and that's what you can build up if you have like not an allergic reaction to alcohol, but if you're somebody who's a slow metabolizer and anyway, and you have a bad reaction to drinking a lot, you get flushed and nauseous. Um, two, can also make you drunker if you're slower to break it down. So there's definitely an interplay between an allergic reaction and alcohol. There's definitely an influence. Um, for the time being, I'd be careful with shrimp and beer, I guess. Yeah, and I'm sorry in advance that you've likely been banned from every Red Lobster in the Tri-County area. Um, <laughs> you get one, just one, uh, uh, I pull up their drinks, honey. <laughs> There's one called the Lobster Caesar. A That's lo- a drink? This lobster tail topped creation starts with spice Mott's Clamato. Mixed with Smirnoff vodka, garnished with a fresh lime wedge, and pickled beans. <laughs> One sip and you'll be a Caesar believer. Whatever's happening to you, it's just because of that drink. That has nothing to do with that's not that's not your fault. That's Red Lobster's fault. <laughs> that's Red Lobster's fault. They overserved you on the a lot of coladas. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. I know that's not a clear cut answer to the question, but there is an interplay between the two. You you you're spot on in recognizing it. Um and I don't know, like maybe we need to do a study. <laughs> Um, here's one from Bex. Weird medical question. I bet a lot of people have. Why do old injuries hurt when it gets cold or rainy? Or is this just a common myth in our heads? Love your show and wishing you well. So this phenomenon dates back, like Hippocrates wrote about this. The idea that an old injury will hurt when it's cold or rainy or whatever. That Mm -hmm. So this is definitely something that humans have noticed for a really long time, which makes us think, there's something happening, right? Mm-hmm. If we keep talking about it over and over and over, either that or somebody read Hippocrates and repeated that and then somebody repeated that and then somebody and on and on and on. Um, so it could just be, you know, confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. You notice that your knee hurt. You looked outside, it was raining, and then you thought about, does my knee hurt and it hurts? And then you, but your knee also hurt that day that it was sunny and you didn't notice because it was sunny. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So obviously there's always that sort of, of interplay, and I don't have, like, a study. Again, nobody's – who would do that study? Um, somebody would. Yeah. Somebody would do any study. Yeah. Um, but also, an area that's been damaged and healed, you could have nerves as they healed that are slightly more sensitive to changes in things like temperature or pressure. 
Um, and that's so a storm would cause pressure changes in fluid, right? Barometric pressure changes. Mm-hmm. So your joint fluid could have pressure changes. And if you have sensitized nerves, maybe you do get pain in that joint. Same thing if the air around the joint is very cold. You're, you're more sensitive to temperature now because of those healed nerves. And so the pain would be more intense. Um, so there are some possible mechanisms that has to do with like just those those nerves that have healed and the sensitivity in them now. Um, that's definitely possible. I can't tell you conclusively because again, I don't I don't know. I don't know what we would do with that information. Uh, warming a joint can help though. I will say that if your joint hurts more when it's cold, actually applying like some warmth to the joint does help ease the pain. So. I'm a cisgender woman. Both my mom and my grandma have told me it's bad to drink too much carbonated water because it steals calcium from your bones. They say it's especially bad for women's health because it increases the risk of osteoporosis. Is this really a thing? Or is there any reason fizzy water would be worse for you than carbonated water? It just seems like one water should be as good as the other, and I love the bubbles. Thanks so much. Love the show. Jen. Uh, this comes, this came, this came out of a study. So the, the, there is a there is a root to this, although it has been misinterpreted. Um, there was the Framingham Osteoporosis Study in 2006. It, and one, many things came out of it, but one of them suggested that older women who drink cola have a lower bone mineral density okay. in their hips. Not in other places, just in their hips. Cola or carbonated drinks? This was about cola. Oh, okay. This was about soda, cola, I don't okay. know, whatever you want to. Um, what they found, though, because they did look into other carbonated drinks, and there was no connection to mm. other carbonated things. So it wasn't the fizzy. That was the problem, right? Um, because it was really associated with cola. The thought was that phosphorus in the drinks, in in carbonated drinks, was leaching calcium from your bones. Is that a thing? That, that doesn't phosphorus? seem to be happening. No. That is not what the issue is. Um, they also found that people in the study who were drinking more cola were taking in less calcium. At first, they thought they were drinking less milk. They didn't really find that. But they did find that you were, for some reason, you were taking in less calcium if you were also drinking cola. I don't know. There's obviously there's other. Well, you're not drinking milk. <laughs> there's <laughs> there other things happening there. You're not drinking yogurt. Um, <laughs> and also maybe it has something to do with caffeine. There, there may be an associated with caffeine as well. But at the end of the day, what they said was it isn't fizzy water. Fizzy water is not the issue. You can drink the fizzy water. It's okay. Um, can I reinfect myself with a virus I've already had? For instance, right now I got a nasty non-COVID cold. And because it's suddenly chilly outside, I'm using my lip balm pretty regularly. I would never share my lip balm with someone while I'm sick. I would just go ahead if I could add a little karma there. Just probably don't share your lip balm (laughs) at all. But should I ever use this one again? Can a virus live somewhere like that for a long time? Is it even possible to get the exact strain of virus I already had? So that's from Liza, Contagious and Clapping. They were about reinfecting. With, with the exact stick. same virus, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if it, I mean, obviously that is the virus that is already in your body. You're gaining immunity to that strain. Eventually, would you be sensitive to it again? Yes, but by the time you'd be sensitive to it again, the viral particles on your chapstick will have died. Um, viruses all live different times outside the body. Every virus, every sort of kind of class of virus is different. And so some viruses are especially hardy and can live a really long time on surfaces. Some of them not very long at all, um, none of them will outlive (laughs) that immunity you have to the virus. So, no, using your chapstick, you're not going to keep reinfecting yourself. And I can't even come up with a scenario where, like, well, but you are increasing your viral load, like, every time you use it. I think all of that would be pretty far-fetched. 
it is important to know you shouldn't share your chapstick. Just don't share your chapstick. Yeah, you shouldn't share your chap. That that is good. And I will say though, I have been in situations recently where people have offered chapstick, where I have seen this phenomenon occurring again. I felt like that would go away forever with COVID. A lot of people thought handshaking would go away forever with COVID, right? Mm. It didn't. Didn't. <laughs> As someone running for office, I can tell you. We like it. We like chapstick. People love like shaking, shaking hands. hands. People like love sharing shit. chapstick. They love that stuff. I would say never share your chapstick. I don't think there's a great reason to get rid of your chapstick in this situation. No. Um, but do, I wouldn't. But just if, if, if an experience has taught me anything, just wait. I've never finished a chapstick. Do you ever finish chapstick? No. It's just, it just goes away. No one knows where I they lose all go. It. You they, know where they go? They go where the nail clippers go, which is, I have no idea. They just well, disappear. I've bought 20 pairs of nail clippers in my life. I use one at a time. How is this possible? Mine are under the seat of my car because they've fallen out of my pocket when I'm driving. They're in the couch or mine our, our children mine have stolen them. Mine is an interesting them. word that you've chosen to use there, mine. My chapsticks. Oh, okay. I thought you were talking about your nail clipper. No, I know <laughs> where my chapsticks go. I just can't get They're all under the, my seat because I wear. they're in my scrub pocket. And when I sit down, the scrub pocket gaps and then it falls and it gets down under my – I'm never going to get that. Fair enough. Why does my period affect my bowel movements? Um, this is a, I, I thought this was important to highlight because I was once told in medical school that if you're, if you ever have changes in your bowel movements with your periods, it's because you have endometriosis, Ooh. like a hundred percent. And like, actually everybody who had menstrual cycles in the class was encouraged to raise their hand if they've ever had diarrhea during a menstrual cycle. Whoa. Please don't do that. Do it on the first day. All you teachers out there, don't do that to your students for, for numerous reasons. Don't do that because all of us who had periods felt the need to raise our hands and admit that we had had diarrhea <laughs> and then also be diagnosed based on that. Um, you may or may not have endometriosis. That is nothing. That is not it. A lot of people exchange, ex, uh, experience differences in bowel movements while they're on their menstrual cycle. Um, it has to do with a couple things. One is uh, prostaglandins, which are the same substances that cause cramps, and the amount of them can also cause in t- different intensities and in cramps and all that. Um, it can also cause diarrhea. It can speed things up. Um, conversely, progesterone can actually slow things down. So later, uh, towards the end of your cycle, you may have some constipation. So you could have diarrhea in the beginning, constipation at the end. Not everyone will experience this, and everybody who does could to varying degrees. It may be subtle. It may be intense. Obviously, it would also have to do with like what you ate and all these other things that influence our bowel movements. But that is a real thing that happens. It is It is just part of the whole chemical hormonal milieu that changes during that point in the cycle. Um, if it's intense enough to concern you, please do go seek your provider and discuss that with them. But generally speaking, it is it is not uncommon or, or something to be worried about. Um, we got a lot more for you, but we are going to take a quick break, and then we will come back with more of your questions right after this in the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web 
design artist, but you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts. And that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got at two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kilmerton. We do a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing comedy forever, and we should both quit. So why don't you listen up <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business, but this awful world. And find out why we can't. <laughs> because we love it so. <laughs> Jackie and Lori Show every week here on MaximumFun.org. Hi, it's Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. I am breaking into this programming to say thank you to Max Fund's members. Your purchases in this year's post Max Fund Drive patch sale raised over $50,000 for Trans Lifeline. Maybe you already know about the good work that Trans Lifeline does. If you don't, They're a trans-run organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis. If you want to learn more about the work Trans Lifeline does or support them further, go to translifeline.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Trans Lifeline. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world.
This question is kind of theoretical, so you may have less of an answer. Recently, two of my friends got COVID. They got it while together at the exact same time with the exact same symptoms. Presumably, they got it from the same source, meaning identical strain. One had two COVID shots, the other had three. The friend who had three was less severely ill, even though she is immunocompromised, and the one who had two is not. Obviously, this is only two data points, but it would suggest that vaccination alone is more effective than the human immune system. Is there any scientific basis for this? Could this just be a fluke? Is there any evidence that even when immunocompromised, vaccinated people are better protected than non-immunocompromised, unvaccinated people? Um, I, I thought this was a good question to address because you're you're hitting on something that I think was you were saying the right thing. And this was a big point of misinformation throughout the last couple of years or however through the last million years that we have been trying to understand and, and fight COVID. Um so first of all, you are absolutely right. These are two data points, and you, can, you can't draw a ton of conclusions from that. Mm-hmm. It's anecdotal. This isn't, you know. So, I, I mean, it's always good to point that out. But you're illustrating something that a lot of people have argued about, which, and you will hear this, that our immune systems are better at, at protecting us against viruses than vaccines, and that the immunity we build up after getting through COVID is better that natural immunity, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. is better than vaccine-induced immunity. Those are not true. Oh. Um, no. There Why? are things – because we, well, we've talked about how vaccines work. There are things we do with vaccines to induce a robust immune response that has been shown to outlast, to mm-hmm. engage the entire immune system in a way that being infected or exposed to COVID doesn't ne- – or any virus – doesn't necessarily do. It could, but it doesn't necessarily. So vaccine-induced immunity tends to be better most of the time, Mm -hmm. um, than natural immunity. Um, So, you know, in these two specific people, I don't know what the difference was. There are still obviously people who get much sicker than others with COVID. Right. There are a lot of studies ongoing to figure out what are all those factors. There's some things we know for sure, some certain underlying chronic illnesses and things, but there's lots of it we don't understand yet. Why does one person get this sick and this person doesn't get that sick? We don't know. You know, uh, we tried to tie to age in the beginning, and then we saw people who were elderly, who had mild courses, and people who were younger, who had severe courses. We don't know. We don't know. There's still a lot that we have to learn. It will be a long time before we understand everything about COVID. That's just the nature of a novel virus. Um, but it is a, a good reminder that vaccine-induced immunity with COVID we know is the better way to go than just hoping for natural immunity after you presumably survive COVID if you get it. So please get vaccinated if you haven't. Um, It's the best way to protect yourself from severe illness and death. Um, Please get boosted if you haven't. Uh, We've been boosted. Oh, you know what we, we are we are a fully vaxxed to the max family. We now. haven't been hitting it hard enough this season, but it is flu shot season, by the way. Go out there and get your flu shots too. Please, please. please. This um get your flu shots, this get your uh bad. yeah, flu shots, get your COVID booster, the new bivalent booster, um, if you qualify for it. Uh right now we have RSV going around, flu is going around, the upper respiratory infectious infection season is in full swing. I would say earlier than normal and more intensely for sure than normal. And there is no thought that's going to let up through the entire winter. We're seeing a lot of stuff that maybe people hadn't gotten. They're getting, for the last couple of years, they're getting now because nobody's wearing masks and nobody's distancing and people are sharing their chapstick again. So um, please go get the vaccines that you are eligible for. It is incredibly important um, for all these reasons we just talked about. Cool. Um, let's see. What's, what's next here? 
Why do some people have difficult veins? This gets on. This, there's more to the question. Oh, there's more to the question. <laughs> I had to get some blood tests somewhat recently, and while the phlebotomist could find a vein, she couldn't get a good blood draw. I was feeling thirsty, so we agreed I'd focus on hydration that day and come back the next day, but it wasn't any easier the next day. When I told my sister about it, she said, yeah, once when I got blood drawn, the guy told me I have tiny veins. Is this associated with any broader negative health outcomes? That's from Carrie, and Carrie, the phlebotomist, was just having an off day. It's not your veins. It's a it's a it's a poor artist who blames their tools, or in your case, their <laughs> medium. They if the real pros, the heavy hitters, they're gonna come in and find that vein no scope every time. Oh, you are making so many phlebotomists and nurses and all kinds of people who draw blood so angry right now. <laughs> they are not already angry with me for talking out of my butt. I can't imagine this is gonna put them over the edge, but yeah. It I mean, obviously, like if I am the one drawing your blood, it is very likely that I am the problem. I am not very skilled in drawing blood. I, I That is an interesting thing to know. Most of us physicians have not drawn a lot of blood in our career. Now, some have. I know there are going to be physicians out there going, well, I do this every day. Sure, sure, there are exceptions to that. In medical school, I was required to do it three times to get wow, signed really? off on. Yes. That is that is bracing. <laughs> if I could just take a moment. Mm -hmm. And so you see a junior doctor and they're like, I'm here. I'm a, I'm a real doctor and I'm ready to take your blood. And well, they've done it three times. Well, that's because we don't usually. So, like in, in a lot of hospital systems, the physician isn't drawing the blood. Oh, sure. Okay. So, yeah. So, it's like it's not a big part of our training because, I mean, the my opportunity, the only reason I have started pursuing, like, actually, I've done it since then, very recently, just in the last couple of weeks, with. Uh, Jan, the RN who works with me, volunteers with me over at Harmony House. She has allowed me to draw her blood a few times to practice. Um, <laughs> I know because uh, she's incredibly talented at it, and I suck at it. So, if and you, so if I have been practicing learning how to draw blood better because I am in a resource limited setting now, where my ability to draw blood would be very beneficial. In a hospital, me being able to draw blood is not particularly useful. There's lots of people who do it better than me whose job it is to do it all the time, I am not the best person in the room to do it. Now, since I'm the only person in the room a lot, it's a useful skill to yeah, have. Yeah, but Desert Island Lost Scenario, if you're like, if the doc, the one doctor that was on your plane comes over with like, hey, I made a bamboo needle, I'm ready to go for it, you're going to see like, they know what they're doing. I, I bet <laughs> they got this. They're a doctor. <laughs> I'm in good hands. My, my point is, and I've actually had this request before, if you are in the hospital and the, whoever's trying to stick you is having trouble sticking you, I've had patients say, can I have the doctor do it? Nine times out of 10, that is not, that is not <laughs> your best option. <laughs> you um, that is not, we are not your best option. It is good to know your lane. That's not my lane. Um, but all that being I'm said, kidding, there are way, no, it, I was kidding earlier. It must be very unpleasant to unnecessarily jab people with a needle when you can't find the vein. Oh, it's got to feel very bad. I can't imagine. So I do I, other was, procedures that require like making sure you do it right immediately. And I, it feels terrible. You want to do the absolute best you can. And if you don't get it right the first time, of course it feels terrible and everybody's trying their best, but there are no broader negative health outcomes with not being able to get a vein. Um, for some people, they're easy stick. You can look. You can look at your arms and usually tell pretty easily, like, do you have prominent blood vessels or not? There are many factors that go into exactly why your vessels might be easier to stick or not. Um, it has nothing to do with, like, I mean, hydration can affect it. That's mm -hmm. a good point. Like, it is good when you go in for a blood draw to go in well hydrated. 
Okay, good to it, know. That does make you a little bit easier to stick. If you're really dehydrated, if you've ever gone in sick because you've been vomiting and they want to stick you to give you fluids, you know you're harder to hit. No matter how easy your veins are, typically you could be harder to hit at that point. But um, but hydration can affect it, but don't stress about this. I don't want anybody to worry. If you've been a hard stick, that doesn't necessarily mean there's anything. You could have other health problems, but that has nothing to do with it. That doesn't mean anything. Have you heard of the bug bite thing? It's a little hand-powered suction device that's supposed to treat insect bites. The makers claim it works by extracting the irritant from the bite. Is that actually possible? If not, what could it be about the suction that makes the bite itch less? Uh, that's from Juliana. Um, okay. So I looked up the bug bite. You remember the bug bite thing when we saw it on Shark Tank? Yeah. Uh, I looked it up because when I saw it on Shark Tank, I meant to do that. And then, I don't know, we probably went to bed afterwards and I never did. Because I wanted to see the studies. I'll be honest, I couldn't find any studies. <laughs> I found a lot of, like, articles about it. There's a ton of, like, magazines and, you know, news sites and things that just wrote about it. People who tried it, like, journalists who, like, attempted to use it and reviewed it and things like that to try to talk about it. I didn't really find, if there were studies, like, even, like, a Google Scholar search, I couldn't find articles um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you look at the if you look at the top bar on their website, you you see you see buy now how it works. Mom on a mission, real stories. That to me is like whoop whoop. Well, whoop, there's whoop. a lot of testimonials. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't work, but it it does mean that like if you're looking for studies, I I I don't have any to point to. Um, as far as I can tell, what they are trying to do is just like literally vacuum suction the saliva and whatnot that immediately is on your skin when you get a bug bite. Um, the problem is that the reaction that your body's going to have to that is going to is going to happen fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. So from what I found from a lot of reviews, not testimonials, because testimonials are people saying it works. <laughs> I wanted to look for reviews. Uh, this is not science. These are reviews. From people using it, what I found is that if you, as soon as you get the bug bite, like Im immediately, like you see the bug, you brush it off your arm or you smush it, maybe. I don't know what you decide to do. That's up to you. Um, if you grab this suction device and immediately put it on your arm, it does reduce the reaction according to reviews. Mm -hmm. This is not science. These are reviews. Because you have immediately removed some of the saliva or whatever that is on your skin. However, if you wait any amount of time, and the problem with that is that a lot of us don't know we got bitten by a bug right away. Mm -hmm. Like, how often do you immediately see a mosquito bite? Yeah, like yeah. versus like you look at your arm and go, "Oh, I got oh, bitten no. by something." I'm bitten. By the time you notice it, you're probably already having the reaction, and then it's too late. It's not going to work at all then, because there's nothing to suction. <laughs> so. I think, I mean, I don't have science to tell you if it works. I think if you have it, like if you're out in the evening when there are bugs and you have it in your pocket and the second you got bitten by a bug, you used it, it may reduce your reaction somewhat for sure. Um, their big argument is that then you don't have to use chemicals. And a lot of the chemicals like that they're talking about, like using some cortisone cream or something, I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're worried about that chemical doing. I think that my problem with it is more that it's sort of playing on this false fear we have of quote-unquote chemicals when, in fact, we are surrounded and filled with chemicals at all times. 
a chemical is not something that is inherently dangerous or bad. And I think sometimes that word gets thrown around as like, we don't want a chemical. We want a natural solution. Right. Well, no. I mean, chemicals save our lives in many ways. Yeah. So Water's a chemical. What's up? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we need to worry about putting some cortisone cream on a bug bite. Most of us. Um, th- I'm speaking in generality. So I don't know. If you, if you want to use it, I don't think it's going to harm you. I see. I saw no reason that they said don't use it on like your face or neck unless you want a hickey. <laughs> but otherwise, I I, I don't know. Taking, There's no science. I got no science to tell you. It's taking literally all of my energy to not go full dad and just be like, it's a bug bite. <laughs> just you got just have a bug bite. Some Sorry, people, champ. You well, got a bug bite. That and, happens. It's life. And and the thing is, we don't if have, you we don't are have plastic for everything that happens to you. I'm sorry, but got <laughs> bug bite text. I don't know what to say. If you are someone who has severe reactions to bug bites, certainly allergic reactions to bug bites, the bug bite thing is not what you need. You need. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you need if you've been to a doctor and you need an EpiPen, then please carry one. If you've been diagnosed and prescribed one, or if you do have severe re- reactions and you haven't been to a, a provider, go to one. Um, but if it's just like a red inchy, itchy bump, I don't know. I think this this you could try this as long as it's not on your face and neck. My my dad got neuropathy and got overprescribed opioids and got addicted. My brother was also prescribed by the same doctor and ended up moving from prescription drugs to heroin after my dad passed. He's clean now. I'm terrified of getting injured and prescribed painkillers. I'm a rideshare driver in a city with a lot of DUIs and a lot of gun violence. I'm less afraid of getting shot and more and or getting into a car accident than going into an ER with a serious injury and being given painkillers and ending up with an addiction. Can you refuse drugs in the ER? Are there negative re- repercussions. repercussions? Sorry, for refusing pain treatments, I would rather deal with the pain of a traumatic injury than have to get off opioids. This is a major fear I have. Sid, what what do you think? Um, I think I thought this was a good question to so ask because, yeah. yeah, well, because one, this is a big fear a lot of people have, and there's two sides to it. There is a place for opioids in treating pain. Right. Um, uh, absolutely. There are reasons, valid medical reasons why we use opioids. They're not just bad. Um, and I say that living in West Virginia and taking care of people with substance use disorder every single day. Opioids are not always bad when they're used in appropriate settings at appropriate doses for appropriate durations of time. Then it's okay. There are times where you go in with a painful condition and there isn't a medication that's going to help alleviate the pain in that moment in the way that an opioid would. You know, if someone comes in with a broken bone and I give them a Tylenol, that's not going to cut it. Um, that's just the truth. So uh, it while it is always good to be cautious about any medicine you're taking— it is important to know that opioids aren't always completely forbidden for us. Um, and I think that some of us who live, especially in areas like we do, you get that sort of impression. I, I'm that kind of patient. I'm very hesitant. Um, even after surgery, Justin can attest, I was incredibly hesitant to take anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, if you are going to, if you are concerned about that, what I would just do is voice that concern with the person who's providing your care. This is a good point whenever you're, ref- quote unquote, refusing some sort of care. I think that there's a lot of worry that you're going to get labeled as like AMA, or, yeah, uncooperative, yeah. difficult, against medical advice, those kinds of things. Um, and certainly that isn't, it isn't a good thing that we'll end up in a patient chart saying patient refused care. That sounds really bad. So I think that, and we on our end as the medical providers, if a patient says, I don't want to take that, it is our job to say, 
can you share with me your concerns so we can talk through it? Because obviously I thought you needed it. You don't want it. Let's talk that through. That's a good thing that we could discuss. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen, right? Right. Providers don't always ask the right questions and do the job we should. Um, but what I would just do is be really honest. I have this concern. I don't. It's not. It. You know. I. I don't want this to happen to me. I've seen this happen to other people around me. Is there an alternative? Do you feel like this is the only? Could you help me understand? Could you help me understand how we're going to prevent these consequences from happening? These things that I'm worried about. It's totally fair to ask all those questions. And if a provider isn't willing to provide you with those answers or take the time to explain things, that's it's perfectly valid to say, I need somebody to answer. Can, can someone else come in? Can you get somebody else to come? If it's, you know, one type of provider in the hospital, I need somebody else. It's okay to ask for a patient advocate. That's always okay to say, like, I feel like we're not communicating well. Do you have a patient advocate who could help facilitate this? That's somebody whose job it is to come in the room, hear your concerns, and help advocate for you to the healthcare facility. Okay. Um, it's okay to do that. Ask the questions. Don't ever feel, and, and, I think the worst thing to do is just say, I don't want any of that, no, and not further the conversation. Say, I have concerns and here's why, and ask the questions. And then the impetus is on them to make sure and answer your questions and make you feel comfortable with whatever treatment plan you two agree on. Before we close, real quick, Sid, yes. uh, you'll be re relieved to hear I got a couple poopers for you to close out on. I know you love questions about poop. You love talking oh. about poop. Got a little bit of poop for you. Here's oh, the straight poop on poop. Ever notice sometimes when you poop, the volume seems much larger than the amount of food you've eaten recently? What's up with that? Where's this extra matter coming from? Well, I will tell you. It's not just food that ends up in your poop. There's a lot of microbiotics in there and different parts of your body that you don't need anymore that you slough off, like skin cells in our body are constantly regenerating, right? So the, it's not just food. It's also dead skin, like dead organics in you that are ready to come out because they've died and been replaced by fresh, healthy cells. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean... Is that, what do you think? There, there's some truth in, in some of that that you said. So there's, there are, like, organisms, like bacteria. A, a lot of our poop is bacteria, yeah. too. <laughs> so that's in that's there. Some of the stinkiness. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. Um, and there are, like, yeah, like, like fat or, I guess, like, yes, in dead intestinal cells yes all those sorts of things sloughing off sure not like in large numbers that's a whole other thing but like okay yeah waste from our bodies in addition to the food that we ate waste that has been produced there's also water and so that bulks up stool you know too mm -hmm. like there's water in there too mm -hmm. um and then there are things that expand too like fiber and things that you eat oh, true, and then yeah. absorb water and expand and get larger right um and you've also got to remember that like and I, you know what? This gets into our the second question because okay. this person sent in two poop questions. Occasionally, thank you, Kristen. You're a hero. Occasionally, generally after eating at a restaurant, I find myself urgently needing to find a bathroom 15 or 20 minutes after eating. I was under the impression that food takes several hours to wind its way through your digestive system. They told us 12 hours in school. I'm sure it's different for other people. Is this after lunch distress caused by something in your restaurant food or is it just a coincidence? Thanks for all you do and sorry for being gross. It's not gross. It's a beautiful miracle of the human body. Thank you, Kristen in Montreal. Uh, so th that's what I was going to say. This gets into the second question. Poop doesn't, you are not pooping out what you just ate. Like in this example, 15 or 20 minutes after you ate, that is, you are not pooping that stuff out. Yeah. Um, it takes, a, it, it does take a while for food to travel through the digestive system. It varies from person to person, from age to age, metabolism to metabolism, whatever you ate, 
how much water you into. There's a lot of factors that go into how fast food moves through the digestive tract. Now, water can blast right through you, right? Well, yeah. Well, but you pee a lot of that out too. But it can yeah. get you water to pee is a faster journey <clears throat> yes. than cheeseburger to do. Yeah, you can sit and chug a bunch of water and have to pee pretty quickly. I used to do a fun trick when I was peeing, and I would drink while I was peeing, and it would seem like I was just never going to stop. You got. I was, you got. I was much younger then. I, I was maybe in my mid thirties. Your like your kidneys are constantly filtering your blood and removing things, including water, from it constantly, every second, constantly. Right now, right now, right now, right now. You are not pooping constantly. <laughs> you are not removing poop from your body constantly. Um, it takes a while for things to move through there. So what is happening when you poop right after you eat is that's your gastrocolic reflex, mm-hmm. which means. Food hits the stomach that comes down the esophagus, hits the stomach, and it starts sending waves through the intestine, which is long, right? You got to go all the way through the small intestine and then through the large intestine and then finally to the rectum and poop. Um, and is it sending that peristalsis, those waves, squishing the food and moving it along, um, stuff gets moved further down. So things that are further in the digestive process are getting moved closer to your butt while the food is coming in through your mouth. So that's not the food you just ate. Now, there are some conditions that can exaggerate that reflex and make it happen quicker and stronger so that it feels like I just ate and now 15 minutes later, oh my God, I got to go to the bathroom. Um, and that pro- and, and some of that could be because of something like irritable bowel syndrome or something else. Some of it might just be where you are at that moment. If you're really anxious, you might notice this happening. Somebody who is experiencing a lot of anxiety or nervousness, maybe you're about to go, I don't know, do a live podcast or something. I don't know if this sounds familiar to you in any way. Are you? Does this happen to you sometimes when we record sawbones? No, I meant to... I meant you and your family and your. Oh, in our bathroom. This isn't really a trial so much as <laughs> it is a podcast. So maybe just keep moving. <laughs> anyway, that's what's coming out. It's not the food you just ate. The food you just ate sent a signal to the food that you ate yesterday or last night or whatever. That like, move hey, it move it along. I'm coming in. Make some room. <laughs> That's what yeah. that is. It's That's, like when you it's put, okay. <laughs> it's like when you put another hot glue stick in the back. You're not uh-huh. shooting out that hot glue stick, but it is pushing the rest of the hot glue out from the t- tip of the poop. That that oh. is a good. It's it's not Great. quite that like mechanical. Your entire intestine is not packed full of poop at all times. That right. is slowly being pushed through. That is why it is a metaphor rather right. than me insisting that your butt is a hot <laughs> glue gun. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed yourselves. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of the Arsenal Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And thank you to you, you yourself, for for listening. We we are so flattered that you continue to spend your time with us. And speaking of spending time with us, do you want to see a very rare, incre- uh, sadly recently rare, hopefully not rare for a very long time, uh, Sawbones Live? Because on November 10th, in Cincinnati at the Tap Theater, November 11th in Detroit at the Masonic, and November 12th in Washington, D.C. at the DAR Constitution Hall. You can see Sawbones opening for My Brother, My Brother, and Me in Cincinnati. That show will also include Schmanners. And in D.C., that show will also include Wonderful. You're getting a lot of podcasting for your for your buck there. So we hope that you will come and join us. I'm really excited. We haven't done a live show since before the pandemic. Yeah, so if you go to McElroy.family and click on events, you can see uh, a list of those. There aren't a ton of tickets uh, for those three shows, so you want to hop on that. Also, we're doing Taz in D.C. on November 13th. 
uh, with Brendan Lee Mulligan. That will not be a Sawbone show, but it will be fun. Um, so uh, come out to that if you can. And one other quick thing I wanted to address. Um, we would never run oh, po- yeah. political ads on our show. Um, that is never something we would uh, agree to or in any way sign up for. That's mm-hmm. not our show. This has nothing to do with me running for office, by the way. No, this- no, no. Last episode, there was a, a technical glitch is, is what it was, a technical glitch that surfaced some uh, not-so-pleasant political ads to some of our beloved listeners through our dynamic ad insertion platform. That was a, a hiccup, a glitch. It was not intended. Yeah, no one I, intended I, for that. That would never be. We apologize for anybody we do who— our ads. Yeah. We would, never, we would never do that. We would never run—we don't run any political ads on our show, and we certainly wouldn't run political ads that run contrary to our own values. Yeah. But we wouldn't run any political ads, so, so I apologize. That won't—that will never happen, at least that we would agree to. <laughs> Um, that is going to do it for us for this week. Until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. All right. Yeah. org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.